0: So a number of years ago, actually more than a number of years ago, quite a while ago, when I was um, in seminary, I was on a team that was charged with planning a retreat towards the end of the academic year, a time of the year when, frankly, a lot of people there, including myself, were very stressed out. It was a time of the year in which, you know, exams were starting to come due and final papers. And also, with a particular subset of my friends and fellow students, it was the time of year in which they would be leaving and finding out, you know, which congregations they might be serving within the next year, what non-profits they might be serving. It was a time of a certain kind of intensity and also a time in which, um, a number of people on campus tended to feel very tense and sort of, um, ill at ease with themselves. And so this retreat was particularly targeted at this moment and these moments of transition, these moments when these tensions and these uh, difficulties and some of these afflictive kind of emotions were running high. And on this team was a former military guy who was in seminary with me and at the first meeting the first time he gathered he sat down first thing he said we should not call this a retreat we should call this an advance (laughs) didn't really take on didn't really take off So we just sort of went about our business and started playing the retreat. And the second time we gathered, he said, I'm a former military guy. Don't you understand? We do not retreat. We must call this an advance. (sighs) Not just head scratching, but sighing now. And we continued on the third time, the same thing, not a retreat. Advance. He didn't come to the fourth meeting after that. I think he probably didn't understand what Kierkegaard wrote many, many years ago, which is that life must be lived forwards, but is only understood backwards. Life must be lived forwards, but is only understood backwards. We need time apart and time away from what we love, especially when it takes on that intense edge because we want to return to loving it well. It can't just be all pedal to the metal, forward and forward and forward. We need time away and time apart. So last week, I was preaching about Rumi's great quote. Let the beauty you love be what you do. There are a thousand ways to kneel and kiss the ground. Let the beauty you love be what you do. There are a thousand ways to kneel and kiss the ground. And I talked about last week, methods and practices of beginning to identify, if you were struggling with that question, what what is the beauty that I love? I don't know what it is. I don't know how to do it. Well, today, we're going to move the ball a little further down the field and talk about, perhaps once we started to identify some of the beauty that we love, and we started to do it, how do we make that journey sustainable? How do we make it so that we can really have the kind of energy or soul power that I was talking about before, so that we can keep our spirits renewed and refreshed and keep it green and staying honest to the beauty that we love, so that we just don't burn out and we just don't fade away because there is so much that we are called to do. This is the seeds of my frustration with my fellow student. Because for him, the word retreat, or what we were talking about, meant somehow admitting defeat. When in fact, taking time apart and away from what we love, and indeed sometimes even who we love, and the ideals that we espouse, is absolutely necessary so that we can actually keep posting W's, wins with those things, rather than admitting defeat. We need some time away. But I have to think if I had to go back again, instead of tuning him out Instead of just thinking, well, one day maybe I can preach upon this and turn them into an anecdote, which obviously I just did. Maybe I would start with the story. It's one of my favorite stories in the Hebrew scriptures. It's the story of Elijah on Mount Horeb. Now, Elijah is a prophet in ancient Israel. And well, we 2000 plus years later still tend to treat our prophets the way ancient Israel treated theirs, which is to say they're hounded and often killed. Certainly was the story with Dr. King's life when he was a prophet in this land just not too many years ago. And so Elijah runs away to Mount Horeb, and not just to the mountain, he actually hides away in a cave. And the story goes that the Spirit of God sort of found him there and said, Elijah, what are you doing? And Elijah goes on, not really with the spirit of complaint, but just actually factually accurate, and says, I'm running away because they are trying to take my life from me. They are seeking me out to try and kill me. Now, what God or Yahweh as the ancient Israelites imagined that spiritual force doesn't say, not retreat, advance. Doesn't say, like Donald Trump at the boardroom, you're fired, bad prophet, get out of here. Doesn't say, like some overamped high school coach with too much adrenaline, slapping on the backside, get out there, you wimp, get back in the game. Doesn't even... Try and comfort Elijah. Now, something different happens. The Spirit of God says simply this. Go out to the entrance of the cave. My presence is about to patch by. And so first, a huge earthquake comes around and shakes the foundations of the world. But then the Scripture says, God was not in the earthquake. Then a huge fire comes along and threatens to consume all the world. But Spirit was not in the fire. And finally, a big wind threatening to blow the world away. But God was not in the wind. And then some traditions say what Elijah heard then was a still, small voice. A still, small voice. But there's a better translation. What Elijah heard then was the sound of sheer silence. The sound of sheer silence. If it was ever true in the Hebrew scriptures, this is the moment that could most be accurately called the Zen of Yahweh. This is the moment of teaching, not by direct instruction or telling, but the moment because nothing is said, everything can be heard again. See, Elijah, when he was running away, he's running away out of fear, and it's understandable, but he never says, I don't want to be a prophet anymore. He says, I am afraid. And so the facts haven't changed after the sheer sound of silence. God asks Elijah, what are you doing here? He said, I'm here running away because they're trying to take my life from me. But Elijah picks up his prophethood, leaves the cave, leaves the mountain, and goes back to life. See, he was not running away. What he got was retreat. He got that moment where he could hear himself again and re-identify with the beauty that he did, which was to be a prophet. I love this story because it's all about breaking it down. There are moments in life when we all need to have ourselves, I would even say, although sometimes painful, broken down to reacquaint ourselves with the really simple, true things, the basic stuff. It's actually very much like the drama today. What we heard from the man in it, he was looking for the miracle stuff, the stuff outside himself, which would give him the power that he didn't have. But the answer from the woman is, it's very simple. Remember what is inside of you. Remember that mindfulness, centering, groundedness, that devotion to simply be here now. It is enough to start to clear away the junk. We all need those moments of being broken down or being reminded how simple the truth can be. So one of the reasons I think why, and some of you have actually told this to me when you first started coming to Wellsprings, that a lot of people say, and I absolutely understand this, that I'm spiritual but not religious. Any of you ever said that? Spiritual but not religious? Okay. Well, what that is about, ultimately, I think is some people saying, you know what, religion signifies to a lot of folks the sort of just accretion of rules they don't understand and practices that seem imposed and all kinds of things that aren't really essential, But when people say they're spiritual, not religious, they're trying to say beyond all that stuff, all that accumulated junk, there's something real that I and we are seeking. That's what the drama is about today. She breaks it down, encourages her husband, find that place within himself. She's saying in some ways, remember the true assets that you have and maybe that all that desire to find the real answer outside of yourself or the magic potion or the magic script, that that will not suffice. And in fact, that might be taking you in the very opposite direction of what you need. And as I mentioned during the announcements today, we're going to be having our fall retreat here in the congregation. And somewhat ironically, kind of like the Elijah story in which he hears in the midst of sheer silence, everything that he needs to hear, it is called hearing what Is there The goal of that retreat later this month is to open ourselves up to that same kind of experience so that we can hear it The same way that elijah found it on mount horeb The hope in that day or in those two days actually is that we might escape the logic Maybe is the ceaseless logic of where you find yourselves right now, which is the more you do the more you do the more there is the more There just is. And if we do that without reflection, we do that without pause, especially when we do it because it is something we love, that's still a recipe for burnout. We can drive and drive and drive ourselves to the point of exhaustion, especially sometimes in pursuit of those things that we really care about and those people that we love. So the goal of this day is to remember that silence is golden, to remember that we are golden and that our words can, in fact, be quite cheap. And yes, I'm aware of the irony of someone who stands up here and talks for at least a half hour every single Sunday of saying that our words and my words are cheap. I do believe they are. Because from time to time we all need to remove those extraneous stuff, all that accumulated junk, and just find again the essence, find again that we can turn off the autopilot, maybe pull off to the side of the road for a little bit, consult the map, and make sure this is really the path that we are supposed to be on And it does align with what we love and who we really yearn to be. I gotta say that one of the, one of my regrets I'm coming to realize it in my adult life right now is that no one ever tells me, commands me to take a time out. I would love it. I would love it if someone would come into the office some days and I'm trying to do all these things and multitask. Time out. Like super nanny. Go to the naughty step. You know? You have to take a time out. The value of this time out is that we remember, because I believe we will remember during this time of retreat. I think it's the only real reason for a retreat, is to remember how to love what we love well. Robert Wright, who's a wonderful author, a gigantic intellect, wrote an amazing book recently, senior editor at the Atlantic Monthly, he wrote an amazing book recently called The Evolution of God. And in preparation for writing about spiritual and religious things, he sent himself off to a Buddhist retreat for a week, silence, just recognizing. And he knew that maybe he was touching something deep within himself when he found that he was enraptured weeds all those things that he had as a gardener had spent his time plucking and picking up and saying they were the problems in the garden he knew one day when he saw weeds growing up along the side of a wall and recognizing for the sheer beauty that they were he said aha maybe i'm actually recognizing something essential within myself this return to enchantment and this return to ourselves once again and so I encourage you, especially if you hear me talking today about this silent retreat and it scares you, and you're wondering, my God, I have to spend one day with myself in nature or in the presence of other people but not talking, and you're saying, how will I do that? Please, I beg you, sign up. Because it is in that place when we can see ourselves and our struggles and also our blessings in the truest mirror possible that we will really start to recognize ourselves again. So sign up, especially if it scares you i also reminded, again, this morning of that song that we just sang. Originally from Ecclesiastes, that turn, 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 everything there is a season, a time of purpose under heaven. That turning that they're talking about is really a word for a much older word that is often misunderstood. It's the word conversion. Now, conversion in too many traditions is about, have you been saved? You know, if I were in a different tradition, I'd invite some of you to come up for an altar call after the service today and say, this is the moment of your decision. Are you going to be converted? Well, I think that's a really immature understanding of conversion because conversion is not once and done it is day after day after day after day turning like the hands on a clock turn towards the things that we find most true it's why thoreau our great teacher and prophet of our tradition said you all saw it. if i had desks i tell you to get all on them from them, on them and be like robin williams here and dead poet society what do you say latin Carpe diem. Seize the day. Not, folks, seize the days. Seize the day. Our arms are not big enough to get around too many days at once. Seize this day. And then, when you are born into it again, seize the day after that and the day after that. And so I'd ask you for a second, what is this season telling you? In this time in your life, what is this season letting you know, especially in terms of some of those things that you love particularly? Heraclitus says that no one bathes ever in the same river twice. It changes and we change. And so this idea of honoring the seasons of the self and honoring the seasons of what we love is really about seeking that deeper kind of love that is known as devotion that exists beyond attachment, beyond clinginess, beyond that egocentric need to say, I'm good at this, so I'm going to stick exactly with what I know right now and perhaps get a little frozen here, but at least I will think I am secure. This past week, perhaps some of you saw as a small note in a lot of newspapers or online, uh, Jimmy Carter celebrated his 85th birthday. And they celebrated that day of his 85th birthday by the reopening of his Carter Center in Atlanta, Georgia. Now, the most interesting thing in this story to me was not that Jimmy Carter celebrated his 85th birthday. I hope he has a lot more. But it was that so many of the new exhibits, the new parts of the Carter Center, were about the stuff that happened after he was president. The humanitarian stuff and Habitat for Humanity, all that kind of stuff. And perhaps you are thinking to yourself, well, no duh, because he had a pretty undistinguished presidency but leaving that aside however you want to judge that historically the key point is that i mean just to be president for one term makes you one of the most powerful people who has ever lived and ever walked this planet the tendency in those kind of high point moments is to have life or at least we might think the significant points of life end right there but here is president Carter for president carter featuring all the stuff that came after a different season in his life and honoring it by expressing his gifts differently. If nostalgia is the only source of beauty and love that we have, then our lives have become a tragedy. I think I probably saw a really pointed kind of awful articulation of this last few weeks. You all know, obviously, who Michael Jordan is. Perhaps some of you know that he was inducted recently into the Basketball Hall of Fame in Springfield, Massachusetts. If you have an opportunity... And you want to make yourself cringe, go to YouTube and watch his acceptance speech. It is the most petty, vindictive, small speech I have ever heard given. He's Michael Jordan. What else is there to prove? He's the greatest of all time. You watch basketball, even if you don't watch basketball, you know that. You know who Michael Jordan is. But he used his Hall of Fame induction speech to settle old scores to somehow answer that even winning back then wasn't enough. He still was living in the nostalgia of regrets and resentments and perhaps to remind himself, I was the greatest and will remain the greatest even though my career is over. That's not honoring the past. That's clinging to it. Perhaps one of the greatest challenges in life that we learn is that it is not truly our failures but our successes that can most hold us up and hold us down. Perhaps we recognize in these moments that the greatest demons many of us will ever know are the angels that we could not let go of. G.K. Chesterton, the wonderfully Rittery English writer, said that angels can fly because they take themselves lightly. Which means, as Lincoln said, the angelic or the better angels of our nature want to fly away. We don't get to keep them. Not in the same form, not season after season. And so our angels can become our bedevilments, our demons, if you will. We want to insist, stay here now. Stay as you were so I can stay how I am because I don't want you to change because I'm too afraid of change. When we know it is sometimes our successes and not our failures that hamstring us, we know that perhaps we are not expressing the beauty that we love in what we do in the best, most full ways that we can so much of life is about letting go. Just yesterday morning I was watching for some unknown reason, one of those fishing shows. <laughs> you know, you leave on when you go to sleep at night, you wake up in the morning, that's what you get on Saturday mornings when you turn it back on. But I was really struck by catch and release. <laughs> you know? They reel the fish in and it's wriggling and everything, they take the hook out, that's not pleasant for the fish obviously. But Then they release it back in. They release it back into the wild. Catch and release. Holding on for a time and then necessarily letting go. It's not ours to keep. One of the reasons fisher folks do that is to keep the supply sustainable. To keep it growing. Keep it real. But it only happens by letting go. I'm thinking a lot about letting go today, because as some of you know, and I talked a little bit about last week, yesterday I went to the funeral of one of my best teachers I'll ever have in my life in ministry, Reverend Dr. Forrest Church. So letting go is not feeling real theoretical today. You know, and there's always that mixture of holding on what was left as the legacy, but of course letting go of the life and letting go of the person and allowing ourselves to be blessed by it. One of the great things about having a real teacher is it's not just about the content. You know, the content is good and the words are good. But even more, it's really about the spirit, about the kind of character that they could show. And Forrest's character was far from perfect. But he was very open about his imperfections. And then that modeled a kind of full humanity that has been very inspiring to me. One of the things... That Forrest was very, very public about, and if he wasn't public about, I wouldn't share it with you. One of the things he was very public about was about his sobriety in the last 10 years of his life. About the ways in which he realized that alcohol had damaged his psyche and damaged his soul and damaged his relationship and would not let him honor the beauty that he loved and have it expressed in what he did. Well, he got sober about four or five years before I did. And like many things with Forrest, he explains the truth of my life better than I ever could myself. If some of you heard that um, interview on Fresh Air that he did that's been replayed in the last week or so, he said that when he got sober, he didn't believe anything different. He didn't think anything different. But for the first time in his life, he felt all those things that he wanted to believe all along. That's what my process of coming to grips with my addiction has been like. Finally, the pain of it, which was also ultimately absolutely necessary, was that I was living an unsustainable life. A life in which just the nature of what my alcoholism was like was not that I couldn't see what was beautiful and I couldn't see what I loved anymore. But it's like every day was a retelling in my life. Of myself on the far side of the river Jordan, like Moses at the end of his life, seeing and almost sort of being able to wave at the promised land over there. But every day was like that. Every day I could identify what I loved. But every day I couldn't be truly honest and faithful to it. It was an unsustainable life. What my awakening has been like is most profoundly, it's about stewardship. Stewardship, which is not about money, or finances, although that's an expression of it. Stewardship is about living the kind of life in which we honestly are accountable to the gifts we have and the love that we share. It means only this, really, especially related to this message series, that if we want to remain amateurs and we want to reclaim our amateur status, remember that an amateur is not someone who is an unskilled, not someone who is underpaid or unpaid. An amateur is someone who does what they do because they love it. Remaining an amateur means that we have to exchange control for trust and know that our love in action, expressed in the beauty of what we do, it always means, like those folks casting it out and reeling it back in, catch and release. This is what forest life taught me. That it is, again, what we give away that matters so much more than what we try to hold on to. Because the one with the most toys, when they die, they win nothing anyway. That's illusory. Ours is ours only for a time. And so learning to release is an act of faith. I think really it is the ultimate act of faith that excels and goes beyond any particular content of faith. Releasing is an act of faith that makes this life sustainable. Because we know that our loves will change. We know that our lives will change. And so if we can hold just gently for a time and then give back, give back to the source from which it came, We will be able to truly live a sustainable life. We will be able to restock the existence from which we draw. We will be able to take stock of who we truly are. We will be able to count our blessings, not keep them, (laughs) count them, so that ultimately we can share them and multiply them in that sharing. We will live our blessings in this way. Well as I like to say every week, then we can live in blessing. And I hope all of us can. Amen. Let's pray together. Divine spark that indwells in today. Good timing. That's all right. I meant good timing. It was after the message. That's all right. Answer the call. (laughs) Good for prayer. Answer the call. Absolutely. (laughs) spark of this day. May we know that our arms do not have to be big enough to develop the whole of life. Our arms and our hearts only have to be big enough to touch this day. May we most fully enter in to the gifts of the beauty that we love. May we trust that in the sway and movement of time that the expression of our lives will change. May we not meet this fact with fear, but may we meet it with a wonderful hope. And a deepening trust. That here in this life we can answer the call of this day. And then most fully lived here and now. We can walk fully into the next moment to come. In this our lives are blessed. In this we receive grace. But even more. In this we are a vehicle for blessing all of life. May it be so for all of us. Amen.